the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, the weekly view on the story shaping shipping. This is the second part of a special from Lloyd's List Towers here in London. We've got the entire editorial team with us, and this edition comes courtesy of our Asia team. We have uh, Sissian Chen and uh, Vincent Wee and Hui Hui Tan from our Hong Kong and Singapore offices, respectively. Welcome to the uh, London office, guys. Hello, Hello everyone. So we spoke yesterday with our European cousins about the uh, stories that are keeping them awake at night. And today is your turn. So when you get back to Hong Kong and Singapore, tell us, what are the stories that you're going to be chasing? What's going to be keeping you engaged on the uh, analysis front? Hui Hui, this is uh, your debut appearance on the Lloyd's List podcast. So uh, I'm going to uh, be very unfair and start with you. Well, it's no secret now that LNG is gaining traction with some ship owners. CMA, CGM leading the wave. Hapak Lloyd already said uh, they will want to retrofit one of the vessels, mm-hmm. mega vessels, to run on LNG. So, so the question is, we have already seen Europe getting ready for LNG bunkering as in ship-to-ship transfer. Mm-hmm. Then where in Asia or where else in the East can they do so? So that's just something that is, uh, is interesting to, to monitor and mm. that's, hope, that's something that uh, that's keeping me active in Absolutely. Singapore. Do you think, I mean, we certainly here in uh, London, we, hear, we get a lot of press releases. A lot of people are very interested in LNG as a bunkering you know, source. And yet the uptake isn't quite there. The potential is, is what everybody's talking about. But really, for this to take off, we need tangible assets on the ground. We need infrastructure. We need people to actually... You know, spend some money. I mean, is there, do you get the impression in Asia that there is still that chicken and egg argument that until the demand is there, people aren't really prepared to invest? Or do you think that, you know this is now a tangible reality that people are genuinely looking at as an option? I think the use of LNG as a marine fuel, uh, other than commercial reasons, there's potentially political motivation. Mm-hmm. Because it's also in the interest of certain maybe national scale or in very important oil companies mm-hmm. that may wish to see LNG gets you know adopted at, as a marine fuel in the future yeah. and there's so much investment sunk in to LNG capacity in terms of storage mm. in terms of developing or unearthing natural gas mm-hmm. so I think on that front is in the interest of oil companies to push for LNG and it's also in the interest of certain shipbuilding nations to see LNG gets adopted because uh, they are very keen to get into LNG fuel shipbuilding for instance. So there has been some talk of course and speculation that perhaps some of these orders are heavily subsidized. Uh, well, that's something t- to be seen in the future, whether, whether that's the case. Yeah. So there's one school of thought, but there are also ship owners who have said or who have touted LNG as one fewer option that can help them navigate through the uncertain future that we are facing now because 
there are other options that are complying with 2020, but uh, these options don't come cheap. Mm. And prices will be very volatile going forward. So LNG, the price band seems to be quite stable so far. Yes, there has been some volatility after Fukushima. Yeah. But as a whole, because it's a market that's driven mainly by power generation for the longest time, so and it's, it hasn't been as, as liquid uh, a commodity. So I think there are different motivations here we are seeing mm. that, that could drive certain ship owners to take on energy. Mm. Yes, no, it's interesting. I mean, you know, last time I was out with you in uh, Singapore, we were at uh, an LNG bunkering conference. I mean, there's, you know, there's real appetite, and there's real interest in it. And uh, certainly, you know, you go to Singapore, it's, it, it's generally the uh, uh, the vanguard of, uh, of bunkering technology, first to introduce MFM on a proper scale. And uh, it's, uh, you know, if it's going to take, if it's going to get some traction in Asia, you kind of think it's going to be in Singapore already, don't you? Well, I think it's not just Singapore right now because it's also in the interest of the Japanese and the Koreans. Mm-hmm. They are familiar with the fuel for sure. But at the same time, as we have just talked about just now, LNG at the moment is not exactly a liquid commodity, but mm-hmm. it's going to be getting more liquid in the market. We see a lot more spot, spot trades nowadays than before. And I think for these countries right, that are traditionally the largest importers of the fuel is they do want to seem see some uh, more arbitrage opportunities going forward. So this is as in my opinion potentially one key motivation behind also because you we have already seen South Korea and Japan coming forward to say we want to also build ship to ship LNG capacity. Absolutely. LNG bunkering capacity. So well, China, on the other hand, the motivation is multifaceted. So I think I leave it to our Chinese correspondent to talk about it. A, a, a lovely segue, but uh, uh, we thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, mm. And uh, we uh, we hope to be hearing a lot more about uh, LNG from Asia from you uh, on the Loitless podcast fairly soon. But over to our China editor, uh, Lucy Chen. What's, uh, what's keeping you awake at night? Well, two things on the radar uh, in addition to Huawei's bunkering questions. Uh, first of all is, of course, the trade war, which is a ongoing issue uh, for the industry. Um, I think the key is that, uh, you know, uh, the key thing for the deal to be reached is whether uh, a structural reform uh, inside China will be included in the choose deal between China and, uh, and the US, mm. which seems to be itself is still under debate within the Trump's administration. However, assume that uh, a structural reform will be included, then I think it will make the shipping industry, uh, it, it will be a much more complex issue for the, in, for the shipping industry. Because if you include structural reform, into the trade deal that means likely that there will be a regular review about whether china has kept its promise so in another world it will be a rolling event Uh, let's say like every three to six months there will be a review uh, from the u.s side then that means that uh, you know the shipping companies can not make any long-term planning because you never know that uh, you know six or three months after whether 
the tariff will be imposed again or escalated again. So I think this is something that uh, we should definitely keep an eye on, mm. that how this rolling event is going to affect the ship operation as well as the decision makers inside those big uh, shipping companies. Second of all, I've uh, been told some interesting movement inside the port industry nowadays, that some of the Asian leading port operators are moving over a fray into the trade finance business by having, well, uh, at least they think that they have a very comprehensive trade data uh, by operating the data over the decades. Especially nowadays, we see a digitalized drive inside the industry. Mm. And with their very close tie with the customs, they will obtain or they will be able to get access to very comprehensive data in which they will know who other shippers are and where their destinations are. That will help them actually to have a upper hand in terms of risk control when if they want to get into the trade finance area so this is uh, quite a a sort of new development that uh, i have heard about potentially seismic as well i mean trade finance is something that touches in some respects all aspects of shipping i mean the risk associated with with global trade underwritten by uh, you know credit notes and uh, you know a fairly anachronistic and, and paper-based uh, system is not the most efficient uh, way of, of getting globalized trade uh, on the move. And obviously a lot of the effort we've been seeing over the last few years around technologies like blockchain and uh, big data have uh, you know, sought the holy grail of efficient, secure global trade. But actually what you're talking about here is the shipping industry almost being a sort of uh, a, a data conduit, you know, an enabler of trade and a secure one at that. But you know, genuinely very interesting one that I didn't see coming out uh, out, out, out of uh, you know that particular area. Uh, exactly, exactly. It is amazing that uh, how the industry is evolving in the sense that how they think that they can better utilize the data they have mm. for ports. Uh, it is especially true because the industry has basically said goodbye to the golden ages where they can make double digits growth mm. every year. Now, you know, the revenue they can generate from handling cargoes is it's diminishing itself, basically. Yeah. So they have to find a better way uh, to generate better profits yeah. going forward. Well, like everyone else, I mean, the, the, the key now, I mean, you know, moving globalized trade from point A to point B is not a question of adding value. Uh, so that is where everybody is now looking to add value to that trade. How do we increase the value of the, you know, what it is we are bringing to this? Because otherwise, shipping becomes nothing more than sea trucking. You know, in, a, in an Uberized world, they are the Uber drivers. And financially speaking, that doesn't work out too well for the people involved in that. So that is you know, genuinely very interesting. Definitely. But we also have to, we have to realize that uh, you know there are actually a lot of uh, very high level of competition mm. in that area in that area because it's it's not only the ports who want to do that as far as i know that those big uh, e-commerce companies like alibaba they also want to develop in that area so uh, we're going to see a very interesting you know future about all those stakeholders who want to expand uh, you know their their they're rich alongside the value chain. Okay. 
Well, we'll certainly uh, hold you to some of that. That sounds very interesting. Vincent, you're in the hot seat out in uh, Hong Kong. You see the stories coming in for anyone else running the news desk. What's your view in terms of the you know the big trends that you're uh, you're seeing? I mean, it seems a bit of a cliche to say digitalization, but that I think is an over- overarching thing that covers almost everything that we do in shipping nowadays. Certainly in Asia, it seems that it's driving a lot of the innovation going forward. Mm-hmm. It's driving a lot of the um, port movements, both in terms of actual automation, in terms of the actual operations, but also taking that a step further in terms of uh, data collection, use of that data, how that feeds through into um, intermodal connections, into the whole supply chain. And to me, it's interesting that um, Asia seems to be leading in a lot of these things, both in terms of the actual companies that are adopting these technologies, whether it be on a trial basis or on a pilot basis, as well as the so-called startups or accelerator programs that with, for example, in countries like Singapore, which actively encourage this with their various programs, as well as Hong Kong, which, uh, you know, we just had the Hong Kong budget out today. There have been sort of a, a various incentives being put in for innovation and technology in general. Mm. But certainly, I mean, if somebody was to come from the port space uh, and Hong Kong being you know, one of the top 10 ports in the world, not unlikely that there will emerge somebody that will, would like to make use of those funds to develop innovation in, in the port space. You know, it's just amazing that that kind of sense of innovation is coming from Asia. Um, it's tangible. I mean, you know, part of the reason that we're all sitting here in London rather than Asia this week is because we're you know, talking about the things that we're going to be doing over the rest of the year as a team. And we've obviously been discussing what happens at Singapore Maritime Week, yeah, not so far down the road. It was interesting because I was out there with you in the last Singapore Maritime Week where you know, you're right, you know, there is this palpable sort of sense of um, data, technological innovation, really changing the nature of what it is we do. But I seem to remember writing an article at the time that we're still at the stage where people are talking theory or at best talking small scale test bed. And you know, until we get something tangible, until we can actually see something uh, you know, show some real difference uh, and, and show the way in terms of this is what it practically looks like. My concern is that we're, you know, we're not going to see much take up and momentum. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, when we get out there in Singapore, um, you know, in a matter of weeks' time, what, you know, whether that advancement has actually been made. Because you get the impression that things are, you know, moving along quickly, but you know, it's yet to see the, uh, you know, the physical manifestation of it. Indeed it will. I mean, I think a year makes a lot of difference, I think. And mm. just within that course of that year, towards the latter end of last year, um, you've seen actually things moving from perhaps a pilot stage to actually usage, mm. e-bills of lading, which were you know, conceptual for the longest time. Uh, obviously, they're not taken off to, to, to the extent that you know, they're taking over all paper bills of lading. No. But that first couple of shipments have gone reasonably you know, sort of smoothly. I think it will start to build on itself. Yeah. Other things like mass flow meters and all the rest of the other sort of small wins, as it were, is just building blocks of these. Once those, once people start to see that these things start to you know take place uh, successfully, mm. I think that that will have a snowball effect. Mm. Um, other things like the blockchain or, or trading, generalized trading platforms that obviously Asian companies are not unique in, in trying to build up. Merck mm. uh, was first with TradeLens and so on, but uh, interestingly, Asian companies like uh, OCL and and, and Costco uh, after joining Costco. Uh, have built their own platform and on an equivalent level. Perhaps with not with not as much fanfare and drama, 
but I think it remains to be seen which will you know pan out in the end yes. and uh, well yes but again you know in, in, in both those cases both launch with you know some degree of fanfare in terms of uh, you know, the possibilities of, of what blockchain will bring but in, in both cases yeah to see much in the way of uh, results but very interesting to uh, to find out what happens enough to monitor for the for the year ahead and also and, uh, very interesting to note that actually you know a few years ago we were you know as an industry very much focused on the vessel as the asset that was going to improve efficiency all of the technology we're mentioning here is effectively land-based control Correct. you're talking about the integration of the global supply chain and the efficiencies found in terms of uh, you know the operation of the whole network rather than the the act of a vessel coming in and out of the port and that is interesting some interesting uh, trends uh, to digest there, and uh, obviously we'll be following up in, in Lloyd's List uh, online and uh, in, in further editions of the Lloyd's List podcast. And for now, uh, a big thank you to our Asia team. Uh, we'll be following up again with a, a final edition of this special mini-series of the Lloyd's List podcast uh, with a view from our US correspondents, Eric Watkins uh, from Los Angeles and Mark Fuchek, uh, who's based on the East Coast in Boston. Until tomorrow, thank you very much.